You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi folks, and welcome to episode 70 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchatz, and this is the show for July 2019. This is a solo show this month, and the topic I have chosen is lens lingo. Basically, all of that jargon related to photographic lenses, or at least as much of it as I was able to think of in the last two months, uh, as I've been building out the show notes... I'm going to do my best to demystify it all so that when you hear photographers talking jargon at each other, you have a chance of understanding what it is exactly they're telling you to do or suggesting you do, etc., etc. So let's get stuck in. So on some cameras, the lens is permanently attached to the camera. But on more advanced cameras, the lenses are interchangeable. So there's our first piece of jargon, i.e. a lens can be removed and multiple different lenses can be added instead. Uh, We call this collection of different lenses that will work with a specific camera the lens system, because of course there is no single overriding standard, and therefore lots of different camera manufacturers will use different standards, and you need to make sure that the lens you buy will actually fit on your camera, and that's a whole load of potential pain there. But for now, I'm just going to say we have lens systems. Now, while we refer to a camera lens as if it was a single thing, right? A lens, you know, like you have in your glasses, you have a lens. Well, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. What we really have on our cameras is a camera lens or a photographic lens, which in the ye olde days was often referred to as a photographic objective. Uh, Though I haven't seen that in years, actually. Uh, But together, or sorry, these, you know, a camera lens isn't a thing. It's actually made of multiple things. Um... So from an optics point of view, your single camera lens contains many separate pieces of shaped optical glass, which we refer to as lens elements. Um, And some of these lens elements are actually multiple normal optical lenses cemented together. Another piece of jargon there. Uh, The cement, though, is transparent. It's basically glue, but it's called cement. Um. Many of these lens elements have lens coatings, which are chemicals that affect how light behaves as it moves in and out of the lens element. There's often physical gaps between these different lens elements, so it's very important that the lens is well sealed. You'll often hear seals mentioned, or the seals are bust on an old lens. That means that dust can leak into the gaps, into the voids inside the lens, and that's not a good thing. When you take all of these lens elements and you put them together into your photographic lens we refer to the sort of the the entire optical path as the lens train or the optical train to be more precise Uh, the lens element at the very front the one that you can whack off things and the one you have to keep clean with your lens blower or your lint-free lens cloth we refer to that lens element as the front element so you might hear someone say oh i dropped my lens and i bust the front element they mean that they broke the piece of glass at the very front of the lens or they scratched it or whatever and this is the reason some people put like you cheap uv filters in front of their lens so not going down that rabbit hole today but that's the front element um there is a lot more going on 
in a lens. Actually, okay, before we go to the a lot more going on. So there's two reasons we have this complexity. Right? It, it, you know, why can't we just be like a magnifying glass, a lens? Well, one reason is that a lens, like a magnifying glass, has all sorts of optical properties we don't want. We call these lens distortions or lens aberrations, and we'll meet these later on as we go into them. Um, and so if you want to stop these kind of bad things happening with your lens, well, then what you have to do is you have to put another piece of optics to counteract the thing you don't want, and then there's a side effect of that, so you add another piece of optics, and before you know it, you have these complex lens strains and coatings and all these kind of things. Another reason for these complex designs is that you may actually want some aspects of the lens to be controllable, to be changeable, to be variable. Um, And so you have some sort of physical movement of one part of the optical train relative to the other parts of the optical train to have some sort of effect on the light moving through the lens. Um, Historically, these would have all been physical controls, uh, but nowadays we tend to have little electric motors or servos in there to move the bits around on our behalf. So as well as this complex optical train and all of these various bits and bobs, a lens will have some moving parts. So the first of these moving parts is the aperture blades. So these are overlapping sheets of thin matte-painted metal that can move in and out to change the size of the physical hole or aperture through which the light passes as it moves from the front of the lens train to the back of the lens train. Uh, these blades are arranged, so the opening is always in the centre, so along the centre line of the optical train, and the opening is approximately, but never actually, round or circular. Um, and that sort of stereotypical camera icon you see of sort of the, the the overlapping things giving a circle in the middle, that is, they are lens blades. Um, they actually have a physical effect and... The more blades you have, the closer to a perfect circle you are, and the more expensive the lens tends to be. Nowadays, we, you know, it used to be that the blades were all straight, and so if you had like 10 blades, that was way rounder than if you had four blades or whatever. But nowadays, we tend not even to have perfectly straight blades. The blades are actually slightly curved, and so the curves add up together to get you even closer to a circle. By the way, the fancier the lens, the closer to a perfect circle you tend to get from your aperture blades, and that actually has a, a visible effect on the photographs you take. Uh, So the first and most dramatic visible effect is that if you point your camera at a bright source of light and take a photograph, you're going to get these star-like spikes coming out of the bright object in your view. These are called diffraction spikes. And the number of them you see is determined by the number of aperture blades you have. So I have a lens I love using for sunbursts because it has six aperture blades instead of a more traditional you know, power of two number, like, you know, eight or 16 or whatever. And it gives six-pointed stars, basically. Um, Whereas you would normally have maybe, you know, some multiple of four with maybe two really bright ones and then offset, you know, halfway between the really bright ones, you might have less bright ones and then offset against those even less bright ones, whatever, you can have all these kind of shapes. But usually they're powers of two. But in this case, it's six aperture blades, so we get this strange six-pointed star, which is, I, I think, is cool. I really like it. And uh, The other effect is the aesthetic of the out-of-focus areas of your image. So we call, you know, oh yes, you know, if you have a nice shadow field, then the, this part of the image is out of focus. 
how out of focus, how much detail is left and how sharp are the edges and the remnants of detail in that out of focus area. And that is determined by the aperture blades, the design of the aperture blades. And what you want is a really smooth out-of-focus area, a pleasing, buttery smooth, creamy smooth, you love those kind of words used, out-of-focus area, creamy smooth, actually not buttery, uh, wrong dairy product, a creamy smooth out-of-focus area. Um, And this brings us to one of the most controversial words, I think, in all of modern photography, bokeh. This is a word that is horrifically misused and misunderstood, so much so that I think the word may have actually ceased to be useful and its definition is probably in complete and utter flux because almost no one uses it to mean what it actually traditionally meant. Bokeh was a description of the aesthetic of the out-of-focus region. So a high-quality lens will have a very smooth out-of-focus region, so it will have a very smooth bokeh. People misinterpret the word to mean the out-of-focus area. No, no, it's the aesthetic of the out-of-focus area. It's a description of that area, not a specification of which areas are out-of-focus. So some people say, oh, you know, there's a a lovely bokeh around that person. No, 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 no. The bokeh isn't a part of the image. The bokeh is a property of the part of the image that's not in focus. It's... A subtle distinction, but probably quite an important one, really. And like I say, the word is pretty much lost all meaning, and it's a pretty good way to get a whole bunch of photographers to have an argument. Lots of crankiness generally ensues, so it you know, may be advisable to sidestep the word. Now, most lenses allow the distance in front of the lens at which an object has to be to be in sharp focus to be altered. In other words, we can change how far in front of the lens we are focusing. And this involves physically moving elements within the lens train. And that physical movement would have historically been done by manually moving some sort of hardware control on the outside of the lens. Uh, But nowadays, of course, we have servos or motors to do it for us. Um, Generally speaking, the most common type of physical control was a so-called focus ring. So this is a rotatable ring around the barrel of the lens, which you would twist to change the distance in front of the camera at which things are in focus. Uh, lenses with focus rings would often have a focus scale somewhere in the barrel of the lens where you could actually read off what distance in front of the lens is currently in focus. And that focus scale would often mark two important special numbers, uh, the point at which the lens is focused on infinity and something called the hyperfocal distance. And this is the distance at which the camera has its maximal depth of field. So everything from the hyperfocal distance all the way out to infinity will be in focus. So if you want to take landscapes or something and you don't want to have the focus changing, you could physically turn the focus ring until it's at that specially marked point, which is the hyperfocal distance, and leave it there. And then in theory, for a landscape or something like that where nothing is particularly close to the camera, then everything will be in focus and you're all good. Uh, many lenses that do have focus motors will also have a focus ring. And, uh, you know, as you autofocus camera, you'll see the ring spin. Uh, but they'll also generally have a hardware switch to turn off the, f- the motor, the servo. And that basically means that it's now over to you to turn that focus ring to focus the lens. Every lens has a closest possible distance at which it can focus. It's so-called closest focus. And this is a number you'll find listed on the lens's specifications. And if you want to do macro photography, it's really important that you buy a lens that can focus in close enough to do what you want to do. 
The focal length of a lens is the distance from the centre of the lens to where light that enters the lens in parallel will cross. And it's usually measured in millimetres. It's a property of the optical train. For a given sensor size, the focal length will determine the field of view. So the same focal length lens in front of different size sensors will result in different fields of view. Now, the fact that the field of view changes depending on the size of the sensor means that if you have a 50mm lens and you put it onto a camera with a big sensor and you take a 50mm lens and put it on a camera with a different size sensor, you get a different field of view and that's very confusing. So this is why we sometimes refer to um, different lenses on different camera systems as having effective focal lengths of X, Y, or Z. And for effective focal lengths, we basically have picked the size of 35mm film as being standard. And whatever field of view you get on the 35mm, then you say that, you know, so if this lens behaves like a 50mm lens would on 35mm film, then it has an effective focal length of 35mm. This is basically what it boils down to. So basically, 35mm is our gold standard, and hence EFL. It's confusing to people. Um, anyway, simple lenses will have one focal length, period. They, these are called fixed focus or prime lenses or single focus lenses. Um, different focal lengths magnify the world by differing amounts, and this affects the perspective of the image. So a lens with a focal length of about 50 millimetres, that's not an EFL, that's an actual focal length of about 50 millimetres, will not magnify the world. So that means they won't cause distortions in perspective. So we call this a natural lens or colloquially a nifty 50. If you have a lens, regardless of its EFL, a lens with an actual focal length of between 50 millimetres, sorry, of less than about 50 millimetres, you have negative magnification. So this increases the size of foreground objects relative to background objects. Uh, we call lenses below 50 millimetres wide angle and focal lengths of below t- about 28 millimetres EFL are often referred to as ultra wide. It's kind of arbitrary, that one. Um, extremely wide lenses, 10 millimeters and lower, create really, really obvious distortions. So every wide-angle lens has perspective effects because you're negatively magnifying the world. Um, but if you take that effect to extremes, you know, 10 millimeters and lower, you have really, really, really obvious distortions. We tend to call lenses like this fisheye lenses because they really distort things. On the other hand, lenses with a focal length greater and 50 millimetres have a positive magnification. So that means that they reduce the size of foreground objects relative to the background objects. We call lenses like this telephoto. It just means that the focal length is greater than 50 millimetres. Um, and as I say, some lenses, simple lenses, have a single focal length, but complex lenses allow the focal length to be varied using some sort of mechanical adjustment which moves around bits of the optic strain. Um, we call these zoom lenses, and the range of zoom can vary greatly. So some zoom lenses, you know, go all the way from being really wide angle to being very heavily zoomed in, uh, say my 18 to 300 millimeter lens would be a good example of this, and we would tend to call those super zooms. Now, 
it's a really common mistake to confuse zoom lenses and telephoto lenses. Telephoto is a description of whether or not something is more than 50 millimeters actual focal length, in other words, whether or not it is magnifying the world in a positive way. Um, and so it will have those kinds of optical distortion, those kinds of perspective distortions. Telephoto has nothing to do with variability. It is just, you know, when you are at a focal length above 50 millimeters, and it's not an EFL, it's an actual focal length, which is why a lens with an EFL of 50 doesn't behave exactly like a 50 millimeter lens. It's the same field of view, but different perspective. Mm. Anyway, that's a, a subtlety. Uh, if you have a 70 millimeter fixed focus lens, it is a telephoto lens. Doesn't zoom, but it is telephoto. If you have a zoom lens that goes from 10 millimeters to 20 millimeters, well, it's wide angle all the way, so it is not at any point in a zoom range a telephoto. And if you have a super zoom that goes from wide to well, super zoom goes from wide to telephoto, so it is a zoom lens which covers within its range wide angle and telephoto. So I'm hoping that clears up the difference between those two. So telephoto is the inverse of wide angle. Zoom means variable. Prime means not variable. Uh, so you increase the focal length of a zoom lens to increase the magnification. And we call that zooming in because you shrink the field of view. And you decrease the focal length uh, to decrease the magnification. We call that the zooming out because you increase your field of view. Uh, with a fixed focal lens, the only way to increase or decrease the size of objects in your frame is to move yourself, or well, your camera at the very least, further away or nearer to the thing you're taking a picture of. And this is sometimes referred to as sneaker zoom or zooming with your feet. If someone tells you to zoom with your feet, they're telling you to move because you can't use a zoom control on the lens itself. Uh, when a subject comes close to the edges of the field of view, the zoom is said to be tight. So you might hear something like, wow, you managed to zoom in really tight on that little butterfly. That means that the butterfly is taking up lots of the field of view. There's not much room between the edge of the butterfly and the edge of the field of view. So you've zoomed in tight. You can also say that for a crop, by the way. A tight crop means that the edges of the frame have been made to be closer to the edge. So we mentioned that the aperture is one of the things you can vary. Um, so there's a whole bunch of jargon around that. Um, so first off, we measure the aperture in something called the focal ratio or the F number or the F stop. And we talked about that in great detail in Let's Talk Photo 50. So I won't go into all that again. Just to quickly summarize, small numbers mean a large physical opening. So lots of like set into the camera. And a large number means a small physical opening. So less like it's let into a camera. Low numbers also mean a shallow depth of field, and large numbers a deep depth of field. And for more on that, see episode 53 of Let's Talk Photography. So, like focus, the aperture was traditionally controlled with a ring around the outside of the barrel of the lens, or the aperture ring. Uh, modern lenses generally don't have a hardware control for aperture anymore, generally all controlled in software. So, I have not seen a lens with an aperture ring in a very long time. Uh, every lens has a minimum and a maximum possible aperture. And for zoom lenses, the minima and maxima might vary depending on the focal length the lens is zoomed to at the moment. So if you look on the spec sheet for a lens, it will list both the minimum and the maximum or the range of minima and maxima as, you know, if it's a zoom lens. 
Uh, by the way, uh, expensive zoom lenses often have the same focal ratio available for all points in the zoom. So a nice zoom lens might be, you know, f3.5 all the way from zoomed in to zoomed out, whereas a cheaper zoom lens may go like, you know, f3.5 when it's wide open, you know, when you're at a, a low focal length, a low uh, focal length, yeah, I was right. Um, and... You know, so you might have like an f3.5 to 5.6 or something like that. So say at 18 millimeter, the lens can get down to f3.5. But if you zoom in, then you can only get down to f5.6. Um, and the maximum number will be changing too. But for some reason, we're fixated, probably because we're fixated on the bokeh word. Uh, we're fixated with the low numbers. So while the spec sheet will list both, People will generally talk about their lenses, and in fact, the packaging, the blurb, you know, the, the the bit used to show off the lens, will generally only mention the low end. So, how how small can the f number go? And so, you'll hear people talk about an f one point four lens. It doesn't mean the lens is stuck at f one point four, although that is, you know, smartphone cameras may have a like an unvariable uh, aperture. The aperture may be just stuck, so they'll have a single f number for the lens. But you know, lenses we buy will generally have controllable focal uh, apertures excuse me and even though they have a range we'll just refer to them by the low number so if you see lenses being f1.4 that means that the smallest possible aperture or sorry the smallest possible f number the biggest possible hole is f1.4 um, and if you see two numbers it's not a minimum and a maximum it's a minimum and a minimum so the minimum at one end of the zoom and the minimum at the other end of the zoom so the kit lens that came with my camera zooms from i think it's 18 to 70 millimeters and it's listed as being an f3.5 to f5.6 so that means that when i'm zoomed all the way out at 18 millimeters i can get down to f3.5 and when i'm zoomed all the way in at 70 millimeters i can only get to f5.6 um lenses with a low minimum aperture physically so low number means big hole so they let in a lot of light which is why you'll often hear them referred to as a bright lens so, you know, as I say, oh, I, you know, that nifty 50 is lovely. It's nice and bright. That means it has a low number. So it might be an F1.4 and F1.8, something like that. Um, so at the point you take your picture, your camera has a specific aperture setting, which is going to be somewhere between the lens's minimum and maximum possible F number. Uh, so adjusting that focal ratio upwards bigger F numbers, smaller physical opening, you'll hear people talk about that adjustment in that direction as stopping down or closing down the lens because you're making the physical hole physically smaller even though the F number is getting bigger. And then you have the opposite where you adjust the focal ratio so that the F number gets smaller which means that the opening gets bigger. And so we refer to this as opening up our lens. Strangely enough, we never seem to stop up. We stop down and close down, and we open up. I've never heard anyone say, yeah, stop that up. So I don't, I don't know why that is. Probably because it sounds silly. Now, lenses will have perspective effects. Things that are straight in the real world may not be straight in your image, and things that are at 90 degrees from each other in the real world may not be at 90 degrees from each other in your image. Now, fancy pants expensive lenses will do their absolute best to keep straight things straight and perpendicular things perpendicular and a lens which succeeds at this is called a rectilinear lens now most of our lenses are not rectilinear but if you're an architectural photographer you're probably spending a lot of money on really fancy rectilinear lenses so 
if something doesn't preserve your angles and preserve your straight lines, then what does it do? Well, it will cause parallel lines to bend one way or the other. So wide-angle lenses will cause the parallel lines to bend outward from each other in the centre of the image. Uh, We call this barrel distortion or barreling. Uh, And it looks like the middle of the image is sort of bulging out like the middle of a barrel, hence the name. Telephoto lenses will cause parallel lines to bend inward towards each other at the centre of the image. And we call this pincushion distortion or pincushioning. Uh, And so pincushioning causes the centre of the image to be pinched in as if it was like on a rubber sheet and someone pulled down on the rubber sheet from the centre. Um, wide-angle lenses, when you angle them upwards from perfectly horizontal, will have a really obvious distortion effect on vertical lines. So that things that are parallel in the real world, like, say, the edges of a building, they won't appear parallel in your image. They'll appear to come to a point, and we call this keystoning, and it's a big problem for architectural photography. So with normal lenses, the centre of the lens is aligned, always aligned, permanently aligned, fixed with the centre of the sensor. And the lens is always parallel to the sensor. Now, some lenses allow the lens to be moved relative to the centre line, or shifted relative to the centre line, and they allow the lens to be angled relative to the sensor, or tilted relative to the sensor. So lenses which have these adjustments are called tilt-shift lenses. So tilt-shift lenses can be tilted and shifted to counteract keystoning. So that means that you can take wide-angle architectural shots that are angled upwards and the buildings remain square. So what you're basically doing is you're getting rid of the perspective effects by having... You're using the lens to counteract the fact that the focal plane isn't parallel to the building, but you're offsetting the lens to correct for that, and it basically undoes the keystoning. Uh, and depending on the angles involved, you may also need to change, yeah, shift the lens off axis to get that all to balance itself out. So that's actually what a tilt-shift lens is for. It's for correcting these kind of perspective distortions or perspective effects. But of course, you can intentionally overcompensate effectively. So instead of using it to get lots of things in focus and to avoid horrible perspectives, you can instead use it to have the focal plane going at this weird angle relative to the sensor plane so that only the tiniest of a strip of your image is in focus. And this has the same effect on her eye. So you take a picture of the real world where you have this really weird angle of the the focal plane to the sensor plane to cause this tiny strip of things to be in focus. And our brains interpret that as looking at a small world zoomed in close. So our brain basically sees it as a macro shot of something tiny instead of a normal shot of something big. And we call this the tilt-shift effect because you would have traditionally done it in camera with a tilt-shift lens. But of course now it's just a filter you can apply in Photoshop or whatever. So... You know, we call it the tilt-shift effect, but it actually comes from these cameras where you could physically move the lenses around so that they weren't parallel or on axis with the sensor or strip of film anymore. So there we go. Chromatic aberration or fringing, then, is another one of these common um, distortions, optical effects that we don't like, and coatings are a big deal in minimizing this. Uh, you'll often hear it referred to as fringing, so you're 
chromatic aberration and fringing are basically the same thing. And the reason this happens is because lenses can bend different colours of light by different amounts. And so if the red light is bent a little bit more than the green light, then when you have a sharp edge, you'll have like a ghostly green halo on one side and a ghostly red halo on the other side. So if you have a photograph of a building with a sharp edge against a very plain background where it's really obvious, you'll see a red fringe on one side and a green fringe on the other side. And it's deeply unpleasant. Um, so you can correct for it in post because different, you know, we know different colours are shifted by in different directions by different amounts. We can counteract that in posts-ish. Um, but really what you want is a really nice lens to stop it from happening in the first place. And that's where you start to pay the big bucks. And then the last one I want to mention is something which used to be a physical shortcoming in cheap lenses that we have now turned into a visual effect we really like. And that's vignetting. If you have a lens where the physical dimensions of the lens aren't really big enough to cast an even image across the piece of film of the sensor, then what happens is there's more light hitting the middle than the edges and it will fall off as a circle. And so the middle of your image is bright and the edges are dimmer and you get a vignette. And that used to be a sign that your lens wasn't really up to the job. But we found it quite artistically pleasing. Uh, so we now actually do it on purpose in software. You could achieve the effect if you really wanted to, with some lens adapters, by taking a lens meant for a small sensor and somehow getting it connected to a camera with a big sensor. So maybe you take a Nikon lens meant for their uh, crop factor, say their um, you know DX form factor, and you put it on their full frame or their FX camera. And then you will get hardware vignetting because the lens isn't actually big enough to cast an even image. Well, as I say, we generally do it in post. And we don't think of it as being a property of the lens. But it used to be a case that lenses would vignette more or less. And a more expensive, physically bigger lens would give you less vignetting than a cheaper, smaller lens. That's an interesting little twist there where something that used to be considered a problem is now considered a feature. Probably because we have the power to turn it on and off at will. So I hope I have covered all of the lens jargon that you're used to seeing uh, and hearing when photographers write and talk, I've probably missed something. So feel free to, you know, leave some feedback and maybe I'll do a follow-up episode at some stage where I hoover up the jargon I've missed out. You can get in touch and you can also see detailed show notes because I've been, you may have noticed I've been doing more reading than I usually do. I usually do these shows off the cuff, but I've been reading from my show notes this time, um, which has resulted in a few tall things. So there's some edits you haven't heard. Uh, which I don't usually do either. Uh, anyway, you will find the show notes at letstashtalk.ie. Uh, while you're there, you'll find these show notes and they're cool. But you'll also see a bunch of big blue buttons under the heading support the show. Please support the show. This is an ad-free show. This show is 100% supported by you, the listeners. Um, it is not my intention to make money from podcasting. It is my intention that podcasting be a hobby that pays for itself. Because can't really afford to have it cost me money so I do need to break even on it but I have a day job that I like um so I don't I'm not trying to be Leo Laporte or whatever but I do need your help so there's regular bills that come in every single month and they need to be paid and so what I need to make that work is some sort of regular income that covers that and 
that's what Patreon is great for. So you pledge a small dollar amount per episode release will be exactly two episodes per month, one photography, one Apple. And at the end of the month, Patreon send me one big lump sum to cover all of your donations. And basically the aggregation that Patreon do allows them to minimize the exposure to PayPal fees. So if each of you were to send me a small dollar amount as a PayPal donation, what would happen is PayPal would get over 50% of your donation in fees. But by bunching it all together into, you know, there's one transaction from you to Patreon for all the podcasts you support, and there's one transaction from Patreon to each individual podcaster, and the end result is it's an efficient way to give small dollar amounts without all of it going to PayPal on fees. Speaking of PayPal, there's another kind of bill. There's the, I need to buy a new microphone, or the, I need to buy a boom arm for my existing microphone, or I need a new piece of software. Those kind of things. And uh, that's what the PayPal button is great for. So it's for making one-off donations. Generally speaking, in terms of it being a donation to me instead of just a bunch of money in PayPal's pocket, uh, I would say if it isn't $5 or more, more, so much of the money goes to PayPal that it's, I, I sort of feel bad that what you're doing is you're trying to help me and instead you're just making PayPal rich. Um, so I would say... If you want to, you know, give me a $5 donation twice a year, or sorry, you want to give me a $2 donation twice a year, maybe hold off and give me a $4 donation once a year or something like that. It, it's just, it's, PayPal just works well for numbers bigger than five, really. Um, but I say, I, you know, if you're aware of that and you accept the fact that you're paying PayPal, go for it. Anyway, I'm rambling, apologies. Um, you can tell I've run out of script, can't you? The PayPal stuff is great because it lets me buy things on demand. And as it happens... Um, a certain other podcaster called Alison Sheridan now has me convinced I need a new piece of software um, and it costs about $100 um, so if anyone has been wondering whether or not they should hit the PayPal button if a couple of you were to do so around about now-ish that'd be great because now that Alison's convinced me I need this software I think I need this software and it will make particularly the Apple show actually sound better Um and this show, actually, actually, no, it'll just make everything better, actually. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you want to help out, now is a really good time because I have this $100 I think I need to spend. There are also completely non-financial ways of helping the show, right? The more listeners there are, and if a certain percentage of listeners use the PayPal or the Patreon buttons, then if you get more listeners and the percentage stays constant, I get more money. So simply telling people about the show is actually a way of financially helping me-ish, kind of. So tweet about the show, tell your friends, recommend it on your social media of choice, you know, just spread the word and that genuinely helps the show. Reviewing the show on something like iTunes or whatever will increase the show's rating, which will get more people in, more people in means more people who donate. So again, just promoting the show, reviewing the show, sharing the show, it all really helps and I always really appreciate when people do that. Okay, I've gone on long enough, just a reminder that you can find detailed show notes at letstashtalk.com. I-E. I've been your host, Bart Bouchotts. You can find me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. My gal pals, Elisa, Susie, and Vicky, the three geeky ladies 
told me to remind you that they will release a new podcast each month. So, check them out at 3 or subscribe in iTunes. The 3 Geeky Ladies, part of the MyMac Podcasting Network. <laughs>